everybody. Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. It's the week of May 10th. I'm your host, James Huang. I am once again here today at the Boulder Gruppetto with pro mechanic Zach Edwards. Hi, Zach. Hello. Hello. Nice and quiet here at three in the afternoon. Yeah. A little lull. Lots of bikes. Lots of bikes. Mm -hmm. Always. Uh, Also joining us all the way from Sydney is Cycling Tips tech editor Dave Rome. Dave, how did it feel to be on a plane again? Uh, it's actually, I've been on a few planes now this year, so things are returning. Uh, it's just, yeah, the planes don't go very far at the moment. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not, not, uh, you're not needing that passport a whole lot right now, are you? No, no. Although you're kind of filling in, depending on where you go, you're kind of filling in a a pseudo passport so people can track you very, very precisely, which is a Mm. good thing. I mean, if you flew to Perth, it may as well be in another continent. Yep. Yep. So yeah, had, had to have one there. A little bio passport, and you get you get uh, quizzed by the local police there about where you've been. So yeah, they're oh, they're good. taking it seriously still. But yeah, travel oh. is coming back here. Okay, good to hear. I dare say it may still be be a while until I see you in person, but we'll see. Yes, Kaylee is sort of back from paternity leave, but he has not yet rejoined us on the show. He's too busy changing diapers. We expect to have him back for the next group show, however, which hopefully will be in two weeks. We'll see. Yeah. Either way, we have another excellent show on hand for you today. We're going to talk about what Dave saw and learned in Melbourne at the Handmade Bicycle Show Australia. We're going to talk about the prospects of Ineos Grenadiers, maybe moving over to clinchers, maybe. We're going to talk about Fox's upcoming gravel suspension fork and whether we think Ceramic Speed's crazy driven drivetrain is actually all that crazy now that they have a million bucks of crowdfunding money. So maybe it'll actually see the light of day. We'll see. And then, of course, we will finish up today's show with a thrilling round of Ask a Mechanic. Thrilling. It's very thrilling. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. First up, Dave, I want to hear all about the Handmade Bicycle Show Australia. So last year was the first year since 2006 that I haven't gone to the North American Handmade Bike Show, but that's because there was no North American Handmade Bike Show on account of COVID. Uh, and I'm actually pretty jealous that you got to go check out a bunch of sweet custom bikes. Um, so we're not going to do the thing where we talk about a bunch of things on a podcast that you should be looking at and not hearing about, but I want to hear about some of the trends that you picked up on over there. Like what's hot in the custom world down there? Uh, yeah, I, I guess Australia's custom world is, is quite innovative. So in terms of material usage, we've got, uh, say Bastion who actually own two 3d titanium printers in house. Uh, and they've started creating parts for a lot of the other custom builders. So Prova, who actually shares a building with Bastion, of course, use a lot of uh, a lot of those 3D printed parts. But uh, but yeah, you can add to that. You can add Borm to that list. You can add uh, uh, Devlin. There's there's basically the list just uh, is quite extensive for for those that attended the the handmade show. Um, so yeah, that's that's I guess moving the needle a little bit. Um, and through that, that's kind of allowing them to get pretty uh progressive with some elements so for example gravel bike tire clearance i'm seeing growing uh prova for example is now starting to play with uh 700 by 52 millimeter tires in their gravel bike uh and that's while keeping a road bike crank set oh that's interesting it's a mountain bike tire that is a mountain bike tire <laughs> it's a mountain bike tire uh, but yeah speaking to those guys i'm actually right this minute writing a well, not right this minute, I'm doing a podcast, but I'm after this podcast, I'm going to be writing a story about um, Curve and that Curve is also pushing their boundaries a little bit. They they believe that the the future of gravel is also using 29 mountain bike tires. Interesting. I mean, you almost get you almost get the sense that the Australian hand-built crowd, 
it's almost like they feel like they have to go a little bit further to stand out. I'd say so. Relative to the rest of the world. I mean, is that a sense yeah. that you got? Okay. I, mean, I think it's sweet that the last handmade bike show I went to, which was, I don't know, however many years ago. When was it in Denver? It's been like five or so years. Oh God, it's been a while. Yeah. That was the last one I went to. And it was just fenders and racks and bags and like no performance bikes. So I think it's really cool that a lot of these bikes that are seen at Australia's handmade show are like performance oriented. Yeah. And like pushing the, pushing the boundaries of technology, not rebuilding a bike that's 50 years old. Yeah. There's a little bit of that, but yeah, I'd say generally, uh, the Melbourne scene is very performance focused, um, and quite, uh, yeah, quite, quite racing focused as well. And, and I think that's, um, represented in the bikes that are being made. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool to see that there were also some, um, new mountain bikes, which is quite interesting you don't see too many fully custom mountain bikes going around but we're starting to see a few of the builders get into dual suspension bikes in that space now uh so i think there's yeah there's quite a few innovative builders here and i think it's true that being so far and so remote in australia and our and our population's not all that big so these builders really have to do something different something innovative to stand out and they're really trying to reach a, a global market with these bikes the fact that Bastion now has two 3D titanium printers in-house. And full I mean, that, carbon manufacturing in-house as well. And full carbon manufacturing. I mean, it really wasn't all that long ago that Bastion was subcontracting out their 3D printing. So do you know when they got those machines in-house? I believe they've had them two years, potentially going on three. Because now that they have the actual production capability in-house, I mean, it seems like that really is what is allowing things to progress so much faster especially with them sharing space with several other big builders too yes yeah very much so so yeah they've got um provas a neighbor to them they've also got um velocraft which is kind of like the painter in the area they they do amazing paint uh and there's a few other businesses there they've got um, a really good bike fitter a really good uh, mechanic as well superb velo service so um yeah that it's kind of like this hub that just i guess just moves forward as one they they all help each other they're, they're just collaborative um and then you've got all the other builders that surround them that are also pushing pushing forward so for example um Baum is right near uh partington and partington is is the the company making some very expensive 1200 gram tubeless disc brake wheels which their their intention is to basically become the new lightweight of the world they they have some very ambitious growth plans uh, and yeah, Baum and Partington are starting to collaborate. So for example, uh, Darren Baum's own bike, he'd, he'd built a gravel bike up as a commuter. Uh, his own as bike, has, yeah, his own bike <laughs> has Partington made fenders with 3d titanium printed, uh, mounting brackets. Um, Sounds so they're terrible. just, they're just doing some ridiculous things just cause they can, right? Like they're, they really are doing stuff that um, I guess you'd you'd just normally shake your head and say, no, why would you bother? They, they're doing it because, you know, why not? I mean, it's really not all that different from back in the day when, you know, someone had a CNC mill in their, in their workshop, right? I mean, now, except, you know, instead of machining stuff out of a big chunk of aluminum, you're, you're printing it from titanium powder. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, Bastion have a CNC mill. Um, they, they use it for uh, finishing off of their, their 3D printed parts and, and for aligning their 3D printed parts. But, but yeah, it's the things that they can make in there are, are, pretty, are pretty special. So like um, the one big release from the show is that Bastion has that new integrated cockpit, the, the one-piece handlebar stem and uh, fork with, with integrated cabling. 
uh, and it's pretty cool to see what they can do uh, with the 3D printer technology. They're able to do, you know, millimeter perfect stems. They're able to create fork crowns that have uh, internal cable routing, you know, built into the crown. So you just, um, you know, you push the brake hose through and it comes out the other end. It's, it's sort of fully guided uh, internally and, that, and that's been done through the print. It's almost like how you want it to be. Weird. <laughs> mm, yeah, I mean, if you so if you look at the yeah if you look at the gallery that we posted on cyclingtips.com, um, one of the things that I noticed too is, I mean, again, it's like you know if you have the capability, why not? I mean, Bastion is also three D printing from titanium their own test fixtures. I mean, mm-hmm. why not? Right? I mean, it's yeah. I mean, granted, titanium powder is not exactly cheap, but it's probably cheaper than some other things that they could have done if they're just doing it in-house. So I do want to talk some more about this 3D printed front end though. And Mm. I know I said that we weren't going to do the thing where we talk about things that we should be looking at instead of talking about, but I guess- It's a really good bike though. It's a really cool bike. (laughs) So this this Bastion 3D printed front end, Mm. I mean, pretty much every other, pretty much every other custom builder out there, they buy carbon forks off the shelf from some supplier. Uh, it's very, very rare for a builder to do their own fork, particularly one out of composite. Um, the list is super, the list is super, super short. Um, Bastion, their bikes, for people who are not familiar, they use 3D printed titanium lugs that are bonded to straight carbon tubes. And they've used a similar type of construction here for their fork um, and integrated cockpit. So what exactly are we looking at here or talking about, I guess? Yeah, it's it's basically something they've, they've invested in and they're, they're creating entirely in house, which is quite interesting. So normally, uh, I guess, traditionally the, the carbon fiber in their frames was, um, filament wound tubes. Uh, and they've now invested in, uh, I guess, more common, um, pre-peg, pre-preg based, uh, molding tubes for the fork. Um, so they're able to get a higher carbon compaction with their, with their methods and, and basically create a, a stronger part and that's been done in uh, collaboration or with help with uh, Raul Lucia, who's, I guess, uh, infamous for his uh, destructive carbon testing and, and rubbishing everyone doing it wrong. Um, <laughs> Raul's so, yellow pencil. Yes. Yes. So uh, they've got, you know, some truly uh, good expertise involved in the composite side. Uh, they're obviously experts in the 3D printed titanium side. Uh, and then, yeah, they're, they're basically at the moment, the plan is just to keep it to their own bikes. Although in theory, it'd pretty, be pretty easy to fit it to other bikes. Um, but it's more an aesthetic issue there. So it is very bastion in its, in its yes. look with the lugs. Right. Because essentially what you have here is you have a 3d printed stem, you have a 3d printed fork crown, 3d printed fork. I mean, it's kind of more than just fork tips. It's almost like the, like the bottom corner mm. of the leg. Yeah. And then up top you have uh, you know, 3D printed drops uh, that are joined in the middle by this kind of like carbon fiber straight section yep. at the tops. And then you have this carbon fiber steerer that's bonded into the crown. And then you have carbon fiber fork blades that are all bonded together. So it's all just printed and molded and glued. Yes. Um, what is the advantage here? I mean, aside from the fork and the cockpit uh, looking absolutely gorgeous and clearly very much matching with the rest of the bastion frame aesthetic uh what's the upside here uh i mean yeah i think you mentioned the main upside but the other one is um normally with uh, aftermarket forks the 
you're effectively limited to to two, maybe three fork rakes. Uh, so you know, MV, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I offer two fork rakes for their for their road fork. Um, that's quite common uh, across the board. So basically, what Bastion's able to do is do millimeter specific fork rakes, um, ranging from I think it was 48 to like 52 or 54 millimeters, um, and they're doing that through different crown shaping, uh, through angling of the crown. So they can basically create any frame they want, any geometry they want, because they've always done custom geometry of their frames, uh, and then arrive at a exact trail figure they want to arrive at, um, regardless of what head angle they pick. Uh, so yeah, it, it's kind of allowing them to really dial in and keep control of the the desired handling of their bikes. Uh, and then after that, just yeah, it's it's the idea that the the handlebar and then the the stem can also be fitted to to the exact dimensions as well. So they're not having to go to the nearest 10 millimeters or or find the nearest angle they can really get exactly what they want. I think it's also really cool to see like a small company like these guys pushing pushing the limits of like a relatively new technology or like everyone else, whether it's a specialized or a Pinarello or a Trek or Cervelo, like a carbon bike is kind of a carbon bike. Like everyone's making really good bikes these days. So it's cool to see a small company kind of pushing, pushing the limits of like what's possible with this new technology. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think to defend the bigger companies i mean this this technology is really really expensive to use i mean titanium powders is crazy expensive but then also the the time it takes to print this stuff is it's not like you're you're putting it in and waiting an hour it's like it's like almost like a 24-hour print cycle uh so it's really not conducive to to mass market um you know uh, for sure large large production scale uh you know bastion are, are currently basically um pumping out a bike a day yeah i mean it'll be interesting because like carbon bikes kind of used to be the same when they were first starting like that wasn't a mass production thing so it'll be in 10 years from now is almost every top end bike gonna be 3d printed titanium stuff or is it just like a small company yeah it'll just be really interesting to see what happens with it well yeah i mean because it's just cool technology aside from the aesthetic thing I mean, we touched a little bit upon the the cable routing. That so the the cabling is fully hidden. Um, Bastion has done some pretty cool stuff where essentially everything's pretty much guided. They have like guide cones and tubes and whatever to to kind of like ease up the whole thing, um, which is great to see. I'm glad that they have that they that they thought of that. And, and actually, apparently they uh, they mentioned in a video that um, I guess they thought of me when they were figuring out their their cable routing because it's such a huge pain in the butt. Um, what I'm wondering though is. Aside from the aesthetic, um, this thing, I would have to imagine, well, obviously it's quite a bit more expensive than Mm -hmm. off-the-shelf carbon fiber stuff. Um, I'd imagine it's also a fair bit heavier too, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit. I think it's, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's probably adding about 100 grams compared to an MV fork and dam cockpit. Um, So yeah, I mean, it's, it's not nothing, especially given the extreme additional costs that you're adding to the bike to then add a little bit more weight so uh yeah but they they were quite clear with me they're like yeah weight wasn't our consideration here it was yeah. like you know it's like no, the person it was, it was person a, buying this bike no no it was matter. like you know, <laughs> no the person buying a bastard does not does not care that it's not the lightest thing in yeah, the world exactly so you know weight wasn't at the top of the list for them it was it was safety aesthetics usability handling yeah i guess if they're making roughly one bike a day like let's say i want a bastion what's the turnaround time on something like that do you know they're current they're currently at 10 months oh 
because of the That's... Melbourne lockdown that uh, Melbourne had one of the, the toughest lockdowns in the world. They lost 100 days out of their production. Oh, um, yeah. So they're, they're still playing catch up. But I mean, even running two 3D printed machines, they're still running behind. I mean, 10 months still isn't that like a firefly is like three years or something. Yeah. Yeah. No, 10 <laughs> months is pretty reasonable. So, um, but yeah, they're hoping to catch up a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to see all the other projects they're doing at the same time. Um, so they're, yeah. they're currently contracted by Australian Cycling to, to produce yeah, the cockpits. Yeah, a bunch of track stuff. Yeah, yeah, to produce the cockpits for the Olympics. Um, and I guess through UCI rules, it ha- requires them to um, have that available for sale. Um, <laughs> some other countries have since bought those parts as well, <laughs> which is pretty funny. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, and, and they're also, their carbon composites lab, I guess you'd call it, um, they're starting to get into some pretty cool stuff with the Paralympics as well. So they've been making racing chairs. Nice. Um, so yeah, I think they, yeah, it's sitting about 10 months, but they're, they look pretty busy. Yeah. There's about nine, nine staff now. So, I mean, it's, it's becoming a relatively, you know, sizable, small business. I mean, they've definitely come a long way since, I mean, I, I saw them at NABs. I can't remember how many years ago when they were just getting going and, you know, they had what, like two or three frames built total, uh, however many years ago this was, and they've certainly come a long way. I mean, th- this stuff is absolutely, absolutely gorgeous. And, you know, like I said, I mean, it's, it is a little bit heavier. It is quite a bit more expensive. I think, what, what was the ARP charge? Like 1500 Australian relative to- Yeah, that was, that was a bit vague afterwards. They actually, um, they came to me afterwards at the show and they're like, oh, that pricing may not be right. But um, yeah, I think about 1500 <laughs> over MV. Right. And, and, and an MV fork stem and handlebar, let's just reiterate here, it, it's not cheap to begin with. So 1500 Australian on top of that is, is a lot of money. But again, I mean, it, it, it looks so good. Yeah. Yeah. It looks great. Um, I, I do think, you know, it, it still falls into a few of the same traps as every other internally routed system. But I mean, they have tried to answer for a number of the issues um, and they, they definitely seem to be taking the safety element serious, but you know, some things like long-term cable rub remain to be unanswered. Well, let's, um, let's save some of that discussion for another episode because mm. I am planning to right, do a deal. bit more of a, a, a deep dive episode on internal cable routing in general. Uh, so uh, we, well, I did get a comment from a reader who uh, rightfully so was, was making mention about how you know, I, I've obviously been complaining a lot about fully internal cable routing quite a bit, but the reality is it's here to stay. So the question becomes then, you know, like, instead of complaining about it, what do we have in terms of suggestions for making it better? So we'll talk about that uh, in another show. But moving on, uh, moving on to a very different front end, uh, Jeff Kabush is, uh, uh, I don't know if he's still racing, well, he's not racing pro cross country anymore, but He's not racing pro. It, pro cross. He's still the, he definitely not cross. I think he occasionally does the cross country race. Well, yeah, he kind of jumps in every now and then. Yeah, I think he dabbles. He's kind of mostly retired though. Anyway, Jeff Kabush recently shared on his Instagram account some sneak peeks of uh, Fox's redesigned 32 AX gravel suspension fork. So uh, Fox's original AX came out in 2017, I think, and that fork was shit. Uh, was. <laughs> Yeah. It was not as good as it could have been. I mean, basically because of the origins of that fork, it was, this was right around, right around the time when boost hub spacing was, was completely taking over in the mountain bike world. And this was, uh, well, Fox was basically a victim of pretty bad timing, I think, in the sense that that fork was essentially just, 
you know, put together from parts of the 32 step cast mountain bike fork that just became instantly obsolete. So instead of just taking all the tooling and just doing nothing with it, Fox kind of reconfigured everything, shortened up that fork and turned it into a gravel fork. Um, it worked okay, um, but it was pretty, it, it worked okay. Sold very many of them. It worked okay. Um, and then it was also heavy. It looked really kind of bulky. It didn't, you know, it, it had a 15 mil. It looked like you were trying to make your gravel bike mountain bike. Yes. It, it looked like a mountain bike that was shortened to work on a gravel bike. I mean, that it's, it, it yeah. looked like what it was and it was heavy like what it was. It had a 15 millimeter through axle, post mount brakes, all that stuff. Um, but now this new fork, it looks like it, it certainly looks like it's an actual dedicated piece for gravel, like, you know, reconfigured nothing. It, it's just a purpose built thing. Um, it's got this kind of really nice looking sloping crown tapered legs and, um, it looks like a Manitou. Kind of, it kind of looks a Manitou and an old Rockshox combined. Yeah, because it does have that old. It does have that reverse arch like a Manitou does. It has the tapered legs like a Rockshox Ruby or a Mag Twenty One. Yep. Um, and it kind of just has a lot of that aesthetic, but it it looks like it could be a lot better this time. And I'm thinking it could be a lot lighter. It better be a lot lighter. Um, that AX I think was like thirteen hundred grams or maybe almost fourteen hundred grams. My guess is this one could be close to a kilo. I mean, I think I think they have the potential to lop off that much weight. I think, um, but so, so yeah, it looks better. My hope is that the internals are tuned more appropriately I for the amount of travel it has. Don't understand this gravel suspension in general. Yeah, like, well, I'm just going to ask you that. I was, I was just about to ask in general, though. Like, I mean, what what are our thoughts on suspension forks for gravel? Anyway? So, like, my argument to this Kabush, right? So he had just doing what he did, Kukapelli and White Rim on it, or whatever. Like he could have taken a hardtail with a hundred mil travel normal suspension fork and put those same gravel tires on with nice parts throughout the bike, and he'd have a nineteen pound hardtail, which is probably lighter than most gravel bikes. So like I don't, I don't understand it. Yeah, but like they're just reinventing a worse mountain bike. But Kabush <laughs> is crazy strong, so I mean the gearing of a gravel bike he can actually push. You know, yeah, the so high put a 40, 40 chainring like Nino on your mountain bike. Can you fit that on a mountain bike these days? Why not? Aren't most frames like limited to like a thirty-six? Not on the bikes that Nino rides because they had to be yeah. they had to be modified so that he could run his chain rings of choice. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Kabush Kabush claims that he was faster on this on this bike setup. I mean, it's it's hard to say whether he would have been even faster if he just put drop bars onto his hardtail. But um, or, I guess yeah, I know. guess not. Just saying, just Kabush in this. I'm saying in general, like, why do you want this over? a light XC bike that's more capable. Well, I mean, yeah. that, that is the question that we keep asking, I, I feel like, over and over again, because, you know, as as these lines between a gravel bike and a mountain bike hardtail continue to blur, um, I mean, we just have all these sort of like in-between bikes that keep popping up, right? We have like super lightweight mountain bike hardtails that, you know, you could certainly put a narrower tire on there and then it would be, you know, kind of fast on hard surfaces like a gravel bike. And then you have gravel bikes that are, putting progressively wider tires on there. We were just talking about, you know, 52 millimeter wide, 700 C tires, which are mountain bike tires, essentially. Uh, and then we have mountain bike, well, then we have gravel bike suspension, um, which presumably, you know, ideally should be a fair bit lighter than mountain bike suspension, especially given the limited amount of travel that we're talking about, like, you know, what, no more than 50 millimeters or so. Um, it really does seem to be an issue of splitting hairs though, I think, right? I mean, is 
Is it, but is, I mean, is it bad that these bikes exist or is it just kind of nice that we at least still have all these options? I think to me, like it, it seems like there's a really big push for this little niche of gravel bikes and like the bulk, 98% of the people that come in here with gravel bikes or that ask me about gravel bikes or whatever, they want a 35 to a 38 ish tire. That's basically a road bike, like something that lets them go ride comfortably on dirt roads not going to get bounced around, not going to get flats as easily. Yeah. I have so few people around here at least that are like, I want yeah. a gravel bike so that I can go. Yeah. That's, do that's this extreme. That's a bolder thing though. Right. Like you've got, you've got perfectly maintained dirt roads everywhere. Whereas, you know, in, okay, in Australia, like, for example, ours are just chunky and rocky and you know, there's enough of it that a mountain bike starts to feel a bit like a drag. You're stuck in the one handlebar position. It feels a bit overkill for, for our roads around here, but you do, in some cases, benefit from having more than a 40 tire in this area. I mean, I think it is important for for not just us, but I think everyone listening as well to remember that, you know, there is a huge diversity of, of terrain types out there and, you know, it, the sorts of riding that people like to do. And yeah, our gravel riding out here, the roads are really good, but, you know, our unpaved roads are 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 often in really good condition and you know sometimes they're in better condition than the paved stuff um so there is also a lot of trail that i like to hit on on my gravel bike but even then a lot of stuff is pretty buffed out um you know at least for a lot of the stuff that you know it's in the immediate area and then yeah like when we get to the the to something that's so rocky you know that's too much for a gravel bike i'd rather be on a mountain bike anyway but you know there certainly have been a lot of rides that i've done where i've started out on pavement and ended up on the road and you know, or dirt road and then, you know, decided to hit a little bit of single track while I'm out there. And like, yeah, in that case, it's, it's always a matter of trying to figure out, you know, what this, what the best setup is for that bike or for all of it. But, you know, you never have the ideal setup for everything, but you, it's, you, you know, you kind of just have to pick your poison as, as far as like, you know, what's section for the, what's best for the section that you care about the most. Yeah. I guess I see, like, I'm just thinking from how much push uh, seemingly there is in like the marketing world of these very gnarly gravel bikes. Like it seems they're like pushing it towards gravel racing and most of the gravel racing in the U S is not something that you would use a bike like this on. If you have any want to go remotely fast. Um, and I also like on the flip side, I also see so many people, not so many people occasionally see a few, a few people on the mountain bike trails around here on these big gravel bikes. And they always look like they are having a terrible time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's the whole underbiking thing. Like it, you know, it people trying to make it all like sound cool and whatever. But ultimately, underbiking isn't quite as much fun as having the right bike. Yeah, like there's definitely there's definitely a use for these bikes, but it seems like the the push for them is not equal to where the the demand is. Yeah, the the use case is far more niche than the actual yeah than the than the market actually buying them. Yeah. That's what, yeah, that's what I don't quite understand. Yeah. I, I think, I think another, a big part of this is that just mountain biking has a bit of a perception issue, maybe um, a bit of an image issue amongst hardcore road cycling, uh, like lifelong road cyclists and, and gravel is kind of the answer to, to getting people off road. And that's where these big tide bikes come in is, uh, you know, a lot of people buying these don't think they need a mountain bike or don't think they want to do mountain biking, but they end up basically doing mountain biking on a bike that has a different name it's not yeah (laughs) has drop bars yeah (laughs) well either way it'll be pretty cool to see what this thing is like um you you know we'll hopefully find out some more information soon and 
I don't know. I, I guess, yeah, like we'll, we'll see sooner and later, sooner than later what this thing is all about. And hopefully it's not terrible. It looks pretty well like a finished product. So I'd imagine they're going to release it soon. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it looks, it looks done. It'll probably be available in two years from now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. And, and announce a month from now and then like in mass production, available mass quantities two years from now. Yeah. All right. Well, moving on, even crazier than the idea of suspension on gravel. Uh, a lot of you will remember Ceramic Speed's driven drivetrain, that kind of wacky shaft drive thing that they had at Eurobike a few years ago. Um, kind of like a giant like beet tenderizer shaped thing at the back. And Ceramic Speed has always kind of, you know, kind of treated this as a bit of like a, almost like a design or research and development exercise. But, you know, recently they've been actually trying to make it into a real product. And uh, very recently, they've gone into sort of a crowdfunding thing, um, you know, where they, they're basically trying to raise a whole bunch of money to turn this thing into a working prototype to potentially bring it to market. And now, I mean, the big news is that they've brought in already, you know, right around a million dollars US. And I guess the next stage for them, they said, is they want to be able to build a, uh, like a working rideable prototype, working rideable shiftable prototype. Um, and then from there, they will... You know, they'll try and bring it to market because they're saying it is you know, supposedly not only more efficient, it's more aerodynamic. They're, they're actually claiming it's cheaper to manufacture, which is kind of wild. Um, I mean, I, I've played with the shiftable one. It, I mean, it does shift. Um, there's, there are certainly all, all sorts of questions here. Like, you know, there's even though it might be really efficient, the, the point loads seemingly are really high because, I mean, all the, all the force is being transferred essentially through one bearing and one, one sprocket tooth. Um, but I mean, even with a million bucks on hand, I mean, what do we think is the likelihood that this thing really will actually make it to production? Mm, small. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just to clarify a few things. So Driven is now a completely separate entity, basically ceramic speed. I mean, it's basically ceramic speed, but they've effectively split it off with its own financial group and put a new CEO in charge. So they're kind of moving it forward as a complete separate entity. Um, and then, yeah, the crowdfunding isn't crowdfunded as as you'd normally think where people are going to get a product in return. They're actually invested in the product. So they might not get anything in return if this doesn't work out. Um, but I am a strong believer with investments and stuff that you you invest in the people. Um, and I guess the, the thing to consider here is that Jason Smith, who created Friction Facts and is kind of solely responsible for... Um, the state for the golden age of chain lubes that we're in now. Um, he, he's come around to, you know, st initially I got the feeling like, you know, as you said, James, that this was a, a marketing initiative of ceramic speed, kind of like a, a show pony for, uh, for standing out at Eurobike. Um, and now talking to him, he seems completely convinced that this can make, that this can work and can make a, a difference in the market. And given how convinced he is, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm keen to get on board. I mean, I, yeah, I think it's super cool. And Jason, like he's local. I know him. he does really good work and I think it's a cool idea and a cool concept and is cool samples and pre-production stuff. But I also lack optimism on the bike industry adopting anything like this. Like there's been calls for the mountain bike world to have internal gearing for the last decade and Oh, more, more than that, more than that. And no one has remotely tried to do that. Um, I, yeah, I just try and find like to get yeah. this drivetrain on a, any of the big companies' bikes is not, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Right. Because it does require 
totally different setup with with the frame configuration. I mean, nothing, virtually nothing that as far as like, you know, the fittings on a bike right now are compatible. I mean, it's a totally different dropout setup, like, you know, chainstay configuration is totally different. Um, you know, this is designed to be an electronically actuated setup, but, you know, Shimano is not going to make it compatible. SRAM is not going to make it compatible. I mean, camping is not going to make it, camping is not going to make it compatible. So, you know, then you, then you kind of run into the question of, you know, how do you develop a control for this? Because even if you can make a working prototype, you still have to be able to navigate the whole patent minefield of, of, you know, road bike controls that are out there that, you know, people have had a really hard time dealing with already. Um, and whether driven, I guess, in it's the separate entity, whether they are going to be able to do this, I don't know. I mean, a million bucks sounds like a decent amount of money in the bike world, but the reality is it's not that much money, especially when you're embarking on the, on something as ambitious as this. Yeah, this is my, my, my understanding. This is just an initial seeding round. So they, they're hoping to use this million dollars to make a few hires. They're going to hire an electrical engineer. I think they're going to hire another mechanical engineer. Um, and they're going to get it to a point. I think the goal with this round of funding is to get it to a point where they have writable samples where the concept is proven uh, and then they'll raise more capital. Um, so yeah, I think this is still early days. Um, yeah. High risk, high reward, I guess, for investors at this point in time. Well, having played with it in person, um, I, I would love to see this thing move on to the next level. Um, if only, you know, like you, Zach, I, it, it's such interesting technology. It's really cool to see that it's something just genuinely new in the bike drivetrain world. And yeah, I would, would love to see where this thing goes. So hopefully that money can, you know, can, can, can make this thing at least go to the yeah. next step. So and, we'll see. And yeah, just, just to add like the people waiting, you know, thinking that they're going to see a road bike with this, it's not going to happen. Not for a long time. I think the, the no. first step we'll see is, um, triathlon. Uh, we'll probably see a bike from, I'm guessing Canyon or Specialized because they're the ones that have previously partnered with ceramic speed with this driven concept. I, re- I reckon they would come up with a, a limited number of triathlon race bikes at a very high price uh, and people would buy it just to be different. One of the prototypes that it was a Cervelo and they also use ceramic speed. So Yeah, cool. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I can imagine a big brand coming out with a bike like this in a category that they already don't sell a huge number of bikes in. Right. No. Um, and it would be a limited edition thing. That's my take. So who knows? Fingers crossed. It'll be nice to see this thing actually make it out into the wild. Um, so yeah, Jason Smith and crew, good luck. We're mm-hmm. keeping an eye on this one. Indeed. Um, all right. So move, moving on to things that are less crazy. Uh, still still maybe a little bit crazy. Um, recently, I spotted on Tom Pidcock's Instagram, or I, I shouldn't say that I spotted someone... Uh, uh, actually, I think it may have been Ronan, Ronan McLaughlin, our tech writer. Uh, I believe he called attention to uh, an Instagram story on Tom Pidcock's account where he had some previously unseen wavy wheels from Princeton Carbon Works. So when I say wavy, I don't mean like they're out of true. I just mean that they, they had this kind Whale. of... Well, yes. But you can't of. say that because they're in legal battle. Yeah. <laughs> so they have a, a differential rim height profile. Um, Princeton Carbon Works have previously, previously had, you know, they called it the, the Wake 6560. Uh, Ineos Grenadiers, they have been using that, those front wheels and time trials for quite a while. Um, Filippo Gana, he did not use it at the start of the Giro, but he had been using it earlier this season, like a UAE tour, for example. He had one of those wheels on the front of his bike. Um, and, you know, the, the story with that wheel has always been 
one of, you know, claimed superior aerodynamics. Um, but now it looks like they have a shallower section coming out. So this, this wheel, the, it's, it looks like it's labeled as peak 4550, uh, which would indicate a differential 4550 millimeter profile. And, and, and that's in the same rim, not front rear. Um, and it's important to note, that, you know, I guess one thing that's interesting about the fact that Pidcock is testing this is he is all of about 50 kilos. So about 110 pounds or so. And for him to be testing these wheels, uh, which were also fitted with prototype Continental Grand Prix 5000 tubeless tires, I should add. Um, so for him to be testing these, I really wonder, it, it made me wonder right away if Ineos is potentially thinking about switching to wheels like this and maybe even going to tubeless clinchers in road stages. Maybe. I, I mean, have a hard time believing. I mean, and Ineos is very much marginal gains, but they, they are. But the thing they've is, they've like not cared about aerodynamics or anything other than just purely weight for the last decade. Well, they they've cared about they've cared about whatever they thought was necessary to help their riders do better. Let let's just yeah. make that clear. I guess so, with these, I've not read their marketing materials, but I've installed a few sets of the previ- the deeper Princetons, and they're really quite narrow compared to a lot of newer stuff on the market. So to me, it's like, are they putting these new, are they riding them for aerodynamics because of the wave or are they doing it for rolling resistance because of clinchers and tubeless? And then being so narrow, I find it hard to believe that they're like that arrow or that good for rolling resistance. Well, I mean, with these being a lot newer than those older 6560s though, I mean, my guess you know, based on at least the newer, you know, gravel or ish wheel set that they came out with the, what the, the grit 4540, I think is what they called it. Um, but that rim had like a 20 mil inner width, I, I believe. And I think the outer width was like 28, 29 mil. So it was yeah. quite a bit wider. Um, if Princeton, if this is indeed a more climbing oriented wheel, and let's just say that this wheel ends up, let's just say this wheel set ends up being closer to like you know, 1300 grams or so, maybe even less. Cause you know, keep in mind, this is a rim brake setup, not a disc brake setup. Yeah, that's another, it's interesting if they're investing in making a new wheel set. That's a rim brake. It's also a rim brake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, although, I mean, Princeton, I, I, if I remember correctly, I don't think they've, they haven't really differentiated their rim brake rims versus their disc brake rims. Exactly. I think one just doesn't have the brake track. Yeah. One just doesn't have the brake track and, and a lot of wheels now I'm seeing, you know, they have like a laser etched brake track and, you know, you can still have both rims include kind of like more heat resistant materials and that sort of thing. So it may not be that much of a stretch for them to do a, a new rim brake wheel. Um, but either way, I mean, can, can you think of a whole lot of reasons why Pidcock would be running one wheels that are not sponsor correct? Because um, again, the, the, yeah, the team is sponsored by Shimano. Two, it's a, it's a, an unseen wheel from, a, a wheel brand that they really only kind of have a loose association with and only for time trials up in this point. Uh, and this was on Pidcock's road, Pinarello, his dogma. Uh, and then he was also running prototype continental tubeless tires. I mean, it's a, it's a really curious combo. What if this is all speculation and it's purely just his training setup? I mean, it could be, but why would his training setup be Princeton Carbon Works wheels instead of Shimano's? company and he's a UK rider. It's mailed him some. Uh, I didn't think they were a UK rider. I mean, they're they're are they not a UK company? No, no. It, ah, 
it, uh, it, it's a bunch of it's a bunch of guys who used to row at Princeton. Oh, that would make yeah, sense. I, I mean, <laughs> it's 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 possible that they they're short of Shimano wheels. You know, there's a pandemic out there, and it, it's possible that they've run out of Shimano wheels to give to all their for riders training? for training. But I think more likely is yeah, I guess we're seeing something that he's he's trialing to then consider for racing because you know, um, Ineos have shown time and time again that if there's there's perceived marginal gains to be had, then Forget about the sponsors. Yeah. It's just, yeah. I have a hard time seeing that they have ridden lightweights for the last couple of years, which are like the least aerodynamic wheel they could possibly yeah. be on. Yeah. But they only use them for climbing stages where I guess aerodynamics aren't such a, a thing, you know, where, where yeah. they I mean, they were using them in the Ardennes as well, which that I would think there's aerodynamics involved there. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I, I think this is a, a testing of, of, potential change for racing is my take and i think if you look at the technology he's using on on his bike at the moment that he's trialing um it aligns quite closely with the the tech that their closest competing teams have moved to and some of those closest competing teams i may be talking out of my ass here but i believe um shared the same technical advisor as ineos <laughs> Uh, yeah. A certain Josh Portner, if I'm not mistaken, if he's still involved with this team, um, which would certainly, you know, I know for a fact he's been advising the teams he works with to to trial Clint latex tubes or tubeless and, yeah, you know, and, and push, you know, wherever possible, pick a, an aerodynamic option that has a balance of weight. Um, and this seems to be that. I mean, I would definitely think it's more of less of aero and more, uh, more on tubeless or just tubes with latex, right? Because like Shimano, from if, if they're sticking to Shimano wheels, let's not talk about lightweights, but like they have the C40 would be the closest wheel. And that's only, they make a clincher version of it, but the clincher version is an aluminum brake track and quite heavy. Yep. And, and narrow. And narrow. And I would think too, like sure Shimano, maybe they should make wheels so that, that Sky wants to ride or Ineos wants to ride. But like, I also have a hard time believing that Shimano is going to invest in new wheel technology that's also rim brake. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's pretty pretty fair. Well, I mean, if, if Josh Portner is involved, I think it's safe to say that Josh has always been a lot more interested in just whatever the numbers show whatever the numbers show him. So in his case, he would say that aerodynamics and rolling resistance generally matter more than a little bit of lighter weight, even in the wheels. Um, and if Josh is indeed advising Ineos in a technical capacity, then yeah, this has Josh written all over it. Yeah. I do, related but not kind of related, last week's news, Victoria bought Dugast. So I'd see they're thinking as a tire manufacturer that there's still a future for tubulars. So we'll see what happens there. Well, maybe they just want the trademark because it's uh, it's got a cool name. I mean, there's, there's, yeah, I mean, so there's, much cooler name than Victoria. <laughs> I mean, there, there's there's definitely a future for, for, uh, for soccer cross tubulars, no question. Yeah. All right. Well, that's enough speculation. I think we're going to have to just wait and see what happens here. But uh, I think it's worth noting that Pidcock had that up on his Instagram account for a very short period of time before it was quite noticeably deleted. Oops. Um, and uh, I'm pretty sure that was not supposed to be put out in the open. So we will find out soon. Uh, I, it seems unlikely that they'll you know pull these out during the Giro at this point. Um, but the tour is not that far away, so we will find out. All right. I think it's time for Ask a Mechanic. Ask away. Because we've got a bunch of good questions here, and 
We are already about 45 minutes into this show, so we're going to see how many of these we can crank out of here. Let's get going. We are going to start with a tire and tube question because it seems to be a lot of the questions that we get these days. Uh, first one is from Velo Club member Peter Watson. Uh, Peter would like to know if latex inner tubes with rim brake carbon clinchers, uh, if that's an okay combo or if or will heat buildup cause problems with the latex tubes failing? I mean, basically every wheel manufacturer says do not do this. Yep. That is, I would also agree, don't do it. That is a pretty universal thing. So my understanding is that latex is a lot less heat tolerant than butyl and carbon clincher rim brake wheels get quite hot. Um, and the last thing you want in a carbon clincher rim brake wheel with a latex tube in it is a blowout or just a sudden loss of pressure because uh, chances are if your rims are getting hot, that means you are using a lot of brake and you're probably going down a pretty big hill which would be a really bad time for your tube to fail. So uh, I would stick to butyl or tubeless if your wheels are compatible. Yeah. Um, this is probably not right for me to say because it's potentially very dangerous, but I'd say it also depends on where you live. You know, if, you don't, if you're yeah. not living in a mountainous area, then it's, it's probably fine. <laughs> totally. Are you doing time trials? Like yeah. you're not using yeah. the brakes at all. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I certainly wouldn't want to use it in Boulder and come, to, come down Flagstaff, but... Um, no. But yeah, you know, if you're living in Sydney where your longest descent is like three minutes, four minutes, and you're only touching your brakes once, it's, it's probably fine. Probably okay. But we're not going to say that. No, we won't although say Mal that. Is, we won't. Although, although Mal is not going to edit this part out. So <laughs> officially, officially, it's a bad idea. We'll just leave it at that. Um, okay. Next, next question comes from another Vela Club member. Uh, John, I'm going to butcher your name. John Barkium. Mm, sure. Uh, Zach, this one might be more for you. He's wondering if if uh, if we have any tips for care of SRAM ETAP components that see a lot of rain on a road bike. He said he wipes them down clean and uses bow shield on the moving parts, keeping clear of the battery. Um, with mechanical setup, he used to just liberally wash the parts, then apply WD-40 to purge out the water, and then apply bow shield at all the pivots and stuff. So what should he be doing here? I mean, is he having issues? Doesn't sound like he's having or just issues. like he rides in the wet a lot. He rides in the. It sounds like he. The way I'm reading this is that he rides in the wet a lot, and he has SRAM ETAP on his bike, and he would prefer to continue having SRAM ETAP on his bike because no one can buy anything right now anyway. So the longer you can keep that stuff running, the better. I mean, I would think like the wear and tear is going to be more on your drivetrain in terms of like the chaining cassette and rings and brake pads and stuff like that. Like the derailleurs, every like the motor is a sealed unit. The battery has a seal around it. Like the stuff can be ridden in the rain, no problem. I mean, like maybe service your pulleys and stuff if you're riding in the rain a lot, but like the actual electronic part, like, yeah, there's no concern there. Yeah. I, I, I would, I would question whether the bone shield, uh, lube being added is, is potentially, um, attracting more dirt into the pivots than otherwise just leaving them alone or letting them be a little bit more dry i mean yeah it's it, it it's possibly a good thing but it could also just be pulling grit in as well right because bow shield is marketed as a dry loop but it's not really dry <laughs> yeah it's funny how that works weird weird <laughs> all right moving on another maintenance question from another Velo club member uh this one comes from jeremy hammond uh jeremy would like to know um, he was asking, given that hubs and bearings slowly wear and, you know, mostly you won't see or feel the changes iteratively, uh, iteratively per ride, 
what are some of the telltale signs you look for in deciding if you need to service your hubs? Uh, do we have any tests or tricks that we use as a quick diagnostic, or do you schedule it based on time, distance, or weather? Definitely not time, distance, or weather. There's way too many variables that go in there. I mean, it's like, I would assume that he's talking about hubs with cartridge bearings, because that's definitely the majority, which basically the bearings are made to be disposable. So like, I would say as long as the bearings still, like you take the wheel out and the bearings still spin. And when the wheel's in the frame, it doesn't have side to side play. Like I would keep running it, um, like ride it until it's gritty and then, or has play and then change the bearings. Like they're not a, not really a, I mean, you can pop the seals out and put fresh grease in them and stuff, but not, no, it's not like, no, it's not really made to be a serviceable item. It's made to be disposable. Like the free hub body and stuff, like the ratchet mechanism is going to need serviced. Um, but the actual bearings themselves, like, yeah, ride them until they're rough and then put new ones in. Yeah. Um, to add to that, like I, I like to put my hand on the frame right near the hub. And when you spin the wheel, you can sort of feel that grittiness. You can feel the roughness sort of um, vibrating through the frame if the bearings are, are on the way out. You can also hear them sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Or you can hear them. Suddenly the front wheel you can hear. But yeah, you can definitely feel it if you, you know, you, especially with like a rigid fork, you put your hand right near it on the on the connecting tube, you'll, you'll be able to feel the bearings on the way out. Um, but yeah, the and then, yeah, as Zach just said, the, the free hub maintenance is probably the main thing. You know, I, I wouldn't be afraid to crack that open every few months and just do a quick clean of it because it, most of the common free hub systems on the market are, are pretty easy to get into these days um so you know should only be a 10 or 15 minute job yeah mostly you don't even need don't even need tools these days yeah exactly so you know even if it's just just a matter of wiping down the the seals um just to you know keep that grease inside clean i think that's good maintenance to do yeah dave along that along the lines of what you were just talking about with putting your hand on the frame or somewhere near the hub i mean i've always characterized that as kind of like a rumble yeah um you know like you're if, if a bearing is working smoothly it should rotate smoothly without any kind of like you know, Zach, you were calling it grit, grittiness or um, it, you just shouldn't feel any sort of vibration. Um, but especially if you can hear it and if you can feel it, the, that usually indicates at that point that the cartridge bearing is not even just, it, it doesn't even necessarily have to be dry, but the surfaces are now no longer smooth. Um, and I feel like oftentimes you can feel that with your hand or something like that rather than hear it. And sometimes you will hear it uh, when, it when it gets really bad, but it'll be one or the other. Most, most likely anyway. Yeah, I mean, on the flip side too, if you have like, Chris King or Shimano or Campy Hubs, you can take everything apart and fully service and clean and pop them back together without having to replace the bearings most of the time. But that's that's the minority. Speaking of noise, we have a creaking question here from Vela Club member Greg press Barron. Fit, press fit bottom bracket. It is not. It is not bottom bracket related. <laughs> um, Greg has an aluminum Cannondale CAD 10 and his seat post keeps creaking. He pulls it out, cleans the seat post and seat tube, and applies park anti-seize every now and then. He said it solves that for a few weeks, and then it starts creaking again. Uh, do we have any suggestions for a longer-term fix? He's riding in good weather and dry conditions. You know, one thing I forgot to ask Greg is what his... Uh, actually, no, he, he said... Well, it, 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 it sounds like he's running an aluminum seat post. I mean, I guess aluminum based on how I'm reading this. Aluminum frame. Yep. So I think the first thing that I would do is not use anti-seize. I would just use grease. Yeah. I mean, um, there's probably not a problem using anti-seize, but... Like, yeah, that's no reason not to use grease, I would say. But I mean, if it's, if it's an aluminum seat post and an aluminum frame and it's not the seat post head itself, like sometimes it could be the saddle rails or the seat post head or even like the seat post collar could like put a film of grease under that. Um, if it's 
if it is actually the seat post in the frame and you're having to do it every couple of weeks, like something might be out of tolerance there. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've had instances, this is pretty rare where, um, you know, sometimes the way those tubes are mitered and welded every now and then, sometimes you can get a creak at a joint. That's pretty unusual though. Um, very, very rare. One thing that I wonder about is, uh, Greg, I wonder how long that seat post is and how much is inserted into the frame. Because sometimes if you have a particularly long seat post and it's really, you know, if, if it's going quite far down into the seat, seat yeah, tube. it kind of knocks the inside of the seat tube, like down by the bottle cage. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so, you know, basically a creek is always two parts that are, you know, sort of moving together under load. Um, and, you know, it, it, essentially if you have that movement somewhere, I mean, the, the seat post is clamped up top, right? So, I mean, it's pretty unusual for a seat post to move there. So usually the, the movement will be happening further down. Um, and if there's a lot of seat post in that frame, then you sort of amplify that movement the further you away, the further away you get from the clamp. Um, so I, I don't know if you have already trimmed down that seat post or if you have an interest in that, but it, if it is an aluminum seat post, if you do plan on having this bike for a while and it's a CAD 10, so I'm guessing you've had it for quite a, uh, my guess anyway, is if you had it since it was new, it, you've had it for a while already anyway, but you may want to consider trimming that seat post down so that there's not too much more than, you know, kind of like the minimum, allow, the minimum allowed seat post in there just to kind of eliminate the possibility that, you know, you're getting creaking further down. Another thing too could be if it has like a, a cheap lightweight OEM seat post collar, like one that is a little bit taller and kind of spreads the load out a little bit more might be, might be something too. Like, I mean, there's a lot of things it could be, but yeah. Um, yeah. Another one I've, I personally had with um, an aluminum seat post and aluminum frame is um, for whatever reason, it was a Thompson seat post, but um, it, it creaked and swapping to a carbon seat post got rid of the noise for good uh the measurements were, were all good like the seat post was to spec replaced it with the same size seat post but there's just for some reason i've had and it wasn't actually a one-off i've had that a few times where a, a thompson seat post I, I don't know if it's the surface finish they've got kind of that machine grooved finish I, yeah. I don't know if it has anything to do with that but it's i have had it a few times where um yeah these seat posts creak and you, you swap out the seat post for something else and the noise is gone forever um, yeah, so. I guess one other thing too, I would say is if he's greasing it himself and like just slathering grease on the inside of the seat, seat tube and then shoving his seat post in a lot of times people do that. And all of the grease that you put in your frame is now on the bottom of your seat post, not actually like on a nice layer and film around the entirety of the seat post where it's in the frame. So I would say like, I like to grease the inside of the frame and also the post where it's going to be in the frame and then just wipe off any excess that way that there's and even coating everywhere that needs to be. Grease is your friend, Greg. Yeah, you can't overdo it. <laughs> um, we have another tire question, this time from Mark Smith. Uh, and I am very curious to hear what your takes on this are. Uh, Mark would like to know what our, our best suggestions for patching a tiny puncture on a tubeless tire that just won't seal. Do's and don'ts and best patches. I mean, a tubeless, is it a road tire or a mountain bike tire? Given that this, well, I don't know. This came to me via Twitter, um, so I don't know if it's road or mountain. I mean, I would say if it's a knobby tire, or it's a gravel or mountain bike, I would just use a plug, whether like a stand start or a Dyna plug. Like those work really, really well, and I've had them in my tires and ridden them for months, and it's been totally fine. Wouldn't do that on a road tire because you'd feel that. Um, I'd say like if it's so small that you can't use a plug, like 
I would hope that the sealant is would seal it. Like maybe you're not using good sealant if you're using, I don't know, not stands or orange seal. Like those seem like some of the other products out there don't seem to do quite as well. Um, I have seen like old school tactic when tubeless first came out and plugs weren't a thing. Like, like you can put an actual patch on the inside of the tire and that seems to work pretty well. Um, but yeah. Works well, but it's a pain because you got to yeah clean, clean all, all the, the sealant and off the yeah. area. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I've actually had instances where, if it's a puncture where it it doesn't quite seal as well as you'd like with whatever sealant you're using. <clears throat> I mean, latex tire sealants are. I mean, I mean, they they operate a lot like blood essentially, in, in that you have a little you know a lot of particulate in the mix, and that's kind of like platelets in your blood, and then you know those little bits are supposed to clog up that hole and basically sort of create a clot. And then the latex will eventually dry up and kind of like create that little plug. Um, if that's not happening, if, if, if the hole is, I guess, too big for the sealant and not quite big enough for a plug, uh, it seems like you might be in that middle ground. Um, I have had instances where, uh, actually adding a little bit of glitter actually, yeah, that, that actually worked quite well. Yeah. I don't like cleaning the inside of the tire and rim with all the glitter, but it no, does, no, this is no. effective. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. Yeah. This is kind of a fun question. It comes from Chris Matthews. Why don't we have downloadable shift tones yet? Asking on behalf of my bike, which would like to make Star Wars laser blurts every time I shift. Great pew, idea. Pew, 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 pew. No. No. <laughs> I, like, I like my bike to be quiet. <laughs> I mean, we we were having a discussion previous episode or a few episodes ago about you know electronic versus mechanical. This would just be another nod towards electronic. You know, this is just another feature that electronic can offer. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm all for it. I think that <laughs> to me, the equivalent of this is like when someone on a ride has a Garmin or a Wahoo. And it beeps. Isn't silenced, oh, and it beeps so every time you stop or slow down or do anything. Like that's the equivalent of this. Like, no, just make it silent. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it seems like it'd be kind of fun to have as a novelty, like every now and then sort of thing. But it's definitely the sort of thing where you'd. Uh, my guess is that you'd want to be able to toggle it on and off very easily. Yeah. No. Don't do this. <laughs> All right. More serious question from Morgan Fletcher. Uh, how do you reliably get controls on bars set up symmetrically? Uh, at the correct orientation, and how do you center things like stems and saddles? Uh, he says he, he knows that it sounds simple, but he often struggles with it. So let's start with the controls. Zach, so I'm curious, like what do you shifters do? on a road bar? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, uh, I think so. That's my guess. Yeah. yeah. So I would, with bar tape off, I use a tape measure, and butt the end of it up to underneath the shifter, like I roll the hood back, and then measure along the bar and where, like what that number is on the, the end of the bar, and then match that to the left and right. Um, another option you could do like on a new build, if the handlebar is not installed, you can put the shifters on and have like a really flat workbench and make it so they don't wobble. That's pretty good. Um, but definitely like rule number one, don't use the markings that are on the handlebars. No, those are never, never right. Almost never. Yeah. That annoys me so much. Yeah. Just don't bother putting, or like they put the, like the grittiness in the clear coat where the shifters go, but it's like always too low from where anyone would ever run a shifter. Right. Right. Um, another thing that I've done too is, um, especially on a bike where everything's already hooked up and you know, that, that trick that you were just talking about, Zach, where you kind of like take the, take the handlebar and shifter and just lay it on a flat surface. That worked great for sure. But, uh, if everything's already set up, one thing that I like to do, I keep a, 
I keep a, a long straight section of uh, very thin aluminum tubing sitting around in my workshop. And what I often do is with the handlebar tape off, I'll rest it on like kind of like right at the right at the edge of the like the, at the base of the lever body and uh, and the handlebar. And I'll just visually sight along that line and make sure it is lined up perfectly with the upper edge of the handlebar. Yeah, that's um, what I do. Because at that point, you you can see pretty quickly if those two lines are parallel. Yeah, that's what I do, but I use a, a spirit level just because it's not not for the fact that it's got a bubble in it, but it just it's the right shape and the right length So I do to do the same thing. Yeah. I'm surprised you don't have a dedicated tool for this. Another, I've got a spirit level. <laughs> well, no, like it, but, but like a like a dedicated, like, you know, handlebar control setup tool uh, thing. I do. It's a prototype from Abby that doesn't exist yet, but it um, it plugs in instead of your stem cap, it plugs in um, on top and then it uses a derailleur hanger gauge to let you adjust. Are you, are you supposed to be talking about that? He posted it himself, so I think it's fair game now. But, uh, <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Another one of the uh, method I've seen from the some uh, world tour pro road mechanic friends is... Obviously, the stem and handlebars have to be straight from this, but if you take a tape measure from the fork, like the drop, open dropout, to the bottom of the lever and measure that from each side. Um, yeah. But that's, That yeah, assumes your stem, stem straight, be, though, which comes right, out yeah, of exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 So speaking of getting your stem straight, so what are, your, what are your tips and tricks for that? I mean, I certainly have one that I have that seems to work pretty well, but I'd like to hear what you guys do. I mean, I've had pretty good luck just eyeballing it. Like, Tune makes a tool. I don't know if they still make it. They used to make a tool with the laser pointer. They do. Yeah, I've reviewed it before. Yeah. That doesn't work on a lot of newer arrow-shaped things. It does not. Um, or if you've got accessories on your bars. It, yeah. So I usually just eyeball it, and I've done a lot of stems, and I usually seem to get it pretty pretty straight. Um, I've seen people use plumb bobs and... Yeah. Plumb bobs? Yeah, like oh. drop it off this... I don't know. That yeah. is, no, that, no, it that, assumes, the, that assumes the whole bike is straight. <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. I mean, that's another one. Like I've seen people use a level like on both hoods, like across to make sure the hoods are and like, that's assuming that your stand is also perfectly straight. Like this is, yeah. So I, I use a trick from, uh, that I picked up from, uh, former rock shocks. I don't, I don't remember what your position was over there, Jeremiah, but Jeremiah Bubar, who I think is at Cannondale now, I think. Um, but one thing that he advised to me was that, um, and this works for road bikes too, although this was originally from, uh, for mountain bikes, but if you, you, you basically take two points on the front end of your handlebar and you line that up visually with fork. two points it. on your fork. Well, yeah. So, <laughs> but I mean, in, instead of trying to get the stem aligned with yeah, the yeah. tire, you Make instead, the bar you basically, with the yeah, fork. you basically take two, two points on your handlebar and then try to make those parallel with two points on your fork. Because then at that point you have, you have, you know, four objects that you can look at and line up that if they're lined up perfectly, then it's pretty much a dead, pretty much dead on that you can get everything straight. Um, because if it's not, that usually implies that your handlebar is actually physically crooked. Yeah. I mean, that's what, yeah, eyeball it. That's what I do is just like, also look at the stem in the relation to the tire, but also, yeah, the handlebar and the fork. Like if you get all of those points lined up, then chances are it's pretty straight. I find that method pretty difficult with some of the newer road bikes. Uh, it works yeah, amazingly on mountain bikes, but yeah, some yeah, of the I newer mean, road I, bikes are like asymmetric forks. It's not going to work out. I will say also, it seems like a lot of people see slightly differently. So sometimes like yeah. if I have a customer that's really particular, like I tell them like line this up mm -hmm. to what you see as straight and then I tighten it down. Right. Because ultimately all that matters is that the customer thinks it's straight. Exactly. Yeah. All right. 
Moving on, we do have one bonus question later, um, but this one comes from Sean Graham. Is there a better, stronger rear derailleur hanger? Uh, he has had a couple of incidents lately where he has bent his derailleur hanger and you know, seemingly without a big hit, and he's wondering if there's anything stronger out there than the wheels manufacturing stuff that he's already using. Um, I mean, I would say the wheels manufacturing ones seem to be about the strongest out there. I know for a while they, I think it was them, or maybe it was another company. I don't remember. They were making like some, there are a couple of companies maybe making stainless steel ones and then also um, titanium ones that that were much, much stronger. But that I've not seen that happen in a long time or like other than pro teams. Yeah. I don't know of any, um, any alternatives other than the wheels manufacturing stuff right now. Um, I will say, Sean, however, that um, I have heard of something that is coming out sometime in the near future. So maybe, maybe just sit tight and there might be something good for you. So hold on there. Hold that thought. All right, let's finish our bonus question here. This one comes from Velo Club member Josh Hallett. Now that Kaylee Fretz is still out, Zach, spill the beans. What is the worst thing Kaylee has ever done to his bike that you've had to fix? The and, worst thing. And as, as, a, as an even extra, extra bonus question, what's a repair that it appears Kaylee has tried to handle himself only to make it worse? Uh, I'm trying to think what the worst. I feel like he's not done anything that's too terribly. Like... I mean, he's like came in and built some bikes of his his own, and definitely have had to help do things. But there's no th nothing like, holy moly, how have you been riding this? Like, yeah, I, I think it's not as fun of an answer as I'm sure this guy was wanting. But I I think the sad fact of the matter is that Kaylee is not nearly as bad a mechanic as we like to make him out to be. Yeah, I mean, he can usually make things work and yeah, workable. Yeah, totally rideable. Oh, well, that kind of ended up being kind of like a little bit of a, a dud bonus question. Well, anyway, that is our show for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please make sure to leave them in the section below if you're reading this from cyclingtips.com. Um, if you are not already a subscriber to Nerd Alert, please make sure you subscribe. Uh, you know, please consider being a Velo Club member because that sort of thing really is what enables us to do this sort of thing. And by all means, please, if your friends already don't know about Nerd Alert, Tell your buddies and have them listen because we like more people listening to the show. And with that, we will see you next week. Bye-bye.